the letters of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. 1st John is actually anonymous, but 2nd and 3rd John are written by someone who's called the Elder. Now the language and style of all three of these works are identical to each other and to John's Gospel. And so most people think that all of them come from the disciple that Jesus loved. Now that could be John the son of Zebedee, one of the twelve apostles, or it could be another John among Jesus' earliest disciples known as John the Elder. Whichever John it was, he's now in his old age and he's overseeing a network of house church communities that are likely around the city of ancient Ephesus. Now from clues within the gospel and from these letters, it seems that these communities were made up mostly of Jewish followers of Jesus and that they had recently gone through a crisis that motivated John to write these letters. He mentions that a group of people have broken off from these churches. These people no longer acknowledge Jesus as Israel's Messiah or as the Son of God. And they're stirring up hostility among those who stayed faithful to the churches. In fact, 2nd and 3rd John clearly address this conflict. 2nd John is a warning to a specific house church. There are people who deny Jesus. John calls them deceivers. And they're probably going to come looking for validation or support. And this church community is not to offer any. 3rd John is actually written to a member of one of these house churches, a man named Gaius. And the elder asks him to welcome legitimate missionaries who are going to arrive soon. He has to tell him to do this because the leader of that church community, Diotrephes, is acting like a jerk. And he's rejecting anybody associated with John the elder. And so these letters give us a window into the tension and conflict that John faced in these churches. And 1st John was written as a response to all of this as a form of damage control. The elder assures those who still believe in the Messiah, Jesus, that God is with them as they adhere to the truth. And so all of this helps us understand the uniqueness of 1st John, which is actually not a letter at all. It reads more like a poetic sermon sent to these churches. John says that he's not communicating new information. In fact, almost all of the key ideas and words in 1st John come right out of Jesus' teachings in the Gospel of John. And so John's goal is to remind them and persuade these Christians to stay true to what they already say they believe. The poetic quality of John's sermon is really cool. He doesn't develop his ideas in a linear or logical way. Rather, he uses a well-known technique of ancient rhetoric called amplification. So John has just a few core ideas he wants to communicate about life and truth and love. And he's going to cycle around these ideas repeatedly, each time offering a little bit different of an angle or emphasis. He uses a lot of hyperbole, he uses very stark contrasts with simple images of light and dark and love and hate and good and evil. But don't let the simplicity of 1st John fool you, this work is deeply profound. I'm excited because we're starting a new series today that we are calling Love and Light, which is working through John's letters, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. Now, if you're familiar with those letters, they're kind of at the tail end of the New Testament. We're going to spend most of our time in 1st John because 2nd and 3rd John are like a paragraph each. So we'll do one week on each of those and the, the lion's share of our time in 1st uh, John. Now, what I appreciated about this uh, video is it kind of gives us a bit of an understanding of what's going on, who John is, what this book is that we're about to dive into 
together. And, and I'm a visual person, so seeing it kind of laid out like that is helpful for me. Now, as we dive in, I, I think that in order to do this writing justice, it needs to be more than just we listen to Tyler's 30-minute sermon on a, a Sunday morning. That we are going to uh, deepen our understanding of what God wants to say to us through these writings by reading it on our own and, and in fact studying it a bit deeper. So we have two gifts for you today. Uh, out in the lobby, we have both a reading guide and a study guide or part one of the study guide that you can take home with you. The reading guide is for those of you who just want to be able to follow along with what passages we're reading each week. And we have those laid out kind of over the 11 weeks that we're walking through these books where you can see these are the passages. You can be reading those and working through those in your own Bible reading time in preparation for Sunday morning so that you have an idea of what it is that we're diving into. The study guide that we're doing is definitely more in depth. And what the study guide is going to provide for you is some tools for your own understanding of how do I dive in and study the Bible more deeply. It's going to walk you through different steps of, of what the, the, the task of Bible study actually is. And part of those study guides is we have questions to work through at small group. So we only have a few copies of them in the lobby because the printer ran out of ink this week. And uh, a trip to Charlottetown with new ink is uh, more expensive than the ink itself, and uh, which is, in fact, more expensive than the printer itself. So we'll have more copies of that next week, but we also do have digital copies. We have QR codes next to them. If you're a techie person and you want to take a picture or scan the QR code, you can download either the reading guide or the study guide. If you're someone like me, I do it all on my iPad and mark up the text and, and stuff like that. That way, uh, I encourage you to do that. Uh, but these will be a lot of the, the questions that we work through in small group as we uh, do that together. I'm excited to start. I'm excited to start because the, the beginning of John's uh, first letter is a beautiful opening. And, and the video showed us very much how this mirrors a lot of the language and the writing style of the Gospel of John. Most scholars are pretty confident that whoever wrote the Gospel of John wrote these letters. Like, it's the same language, the same writing style. And so I'm, I'm fairly convinced that this is, this is John, one of Jesus' 12 disciples, who wrote this. Other scholars, they may debate that, but, but the, the overwhelming majority of people tend to land in that area. And why it's important for us to be reading these ancient writings, these ancient letters and sermons that were sent out to churches 2,000 years ago, it's important for us because as Christians, we believe that the Holy Spirit somehow inspired what John was writing, both in his gospel and in these letters. That, that even though it was a human writing these letters, using their own vocabulary and experience and, and time with Jesus that informed how they wrote, the Spirit was guiding that process. And we also believe that that same spirit that guided John 2,000 years ago to write these letters and his gospel is also the same spirit that dwells in you and I as followers of Jesus. 
It's the same spirit that wants to illuminate these words to us as we read them and apply them to our hearts so that we might receive through the spirit, writing through John, what God wants to say to us as well. Even though we're 2,000 years later, even though we're on the other side of the globe, the Spirit of God wants to speak to you and I. As Christians, we believe that God has chosen to reveal himself through these kinds of writings that we have uh, canonized in the Bible. We believe that, that the same Spirit who inspired them also wants to bring them to life for us. As Christians, we believe that they communicate truths about God and about life that are important for us as followers of Jesus and that they're an authoritative teaching for us. And so we should pay special attention to what they say as followers of Jesus, as disciples, because this is the word of God, though written to the audiences or the, the, the house churches of Ephesus, they're also God's authoritative word to us. So let's dive in. These are the first four verses of 1 John chapter 1. That which was from the beginning, which we've heard, which we've seen with our own eyes, which we have looked at and with our own hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared. We have seen it and testified. To it, And we proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. Now, there's a lot in there. There's a lot of theological language. There is, it's a little bit hard to follow in the way that John writes. But there are three things that we're going to really unpack in this passage this morning as John opens up this really sermon to, uh, to us and to the churches in Ephesus. First of all, John is sharing his firsthand experience about Jesus. We see language throughout this paragraph of, we've seen this. We've touched, we've heard, we were with this eternal word of life. And now we're sharing it with you. John talks about this, this glorious person of Jesus. He's using more than language of like, there was this rabbi that we spent three years with. He's talking about Jesus. Yes, he knew him as the man, but also he's talking about him in ways that go beyond any human being that's ever existed. And... John talks about the joy of being able to share this with people. So if you're taking notes, this, these are three points today. We're keeping it simple. This one slide, John's firsthand experience, glorious person of Jesus, and the joy of sharing. A couple weeks ago, I went golfing with uh, one of my roommates from college. And we're both like, we're, we're bad golfers, okay? We like getting out. We were up in Cavendish, and uh, after you know, deciding we're not going to keep score on hole eight of a nine-hole course, uh, we decided to go for lunch afterwards. And so we went to the, the Avonlea Village, right? And they have a Piatto pizza there. And you walk in, 
and there's the pizza oven in the back. And you see them there with their nice big pizza pellets, putting the pizza into the oven. You see the fire, you smell the smoke and the crisping of the dough. And 90 seconds later, they pull that pizza out, they slice it up, they put it on someone's table, and just like the aroma of the place. Uh, listen, man, this is why we do a 10 o'clock service so you're out of here by lunch, right? Corn boil at one. Corn boil at one, <laughs> that's right. And so me and my friend, we sat down and I'm reading through the menu and I order a pizza that had pineapple and jalapeno on it. And I know this is controversial, okay? This, this might be the most controversial thing I say from the pulpit today. I had a pineapple that had pizza, or a pizza that had pineapple on it. Uh, it wasn't that much pineapple. But let me tell you, it was delicious. And I'm not normally a pineapple on pizza person, but it was the pineapple mixed with the jalapeno. It's the spicy and the sweet together with the crisp crust that, like, it doesn't make a sound, but as you bend the pizza, you feel the crunch. And you put it in your and it's, it's just this perfect concoction. It was a great pizza. And you guys believe me. I'm telling you about my firsthand experience with Piatto Pizza. About the smell and the touch and the taste. What I heard of biting into the pizza. And listen, it was a phenomenal experience. But listen, you might look at the menu at Piatto. And you might see the Italian name that they gave that pizza, which I felt like a fool trying to say to the waiter. And you might read the description about, oh, it's got pineapple and like, not interested. But you just heard from someone that you know talk about their experience with this pizza, that even though it's got pineapple on it and jalapeno, it was actually a phenomenal experience. And for some reason, you're considering that pizza much more now than if you would have just read it on the menu. Sharing first-hand experience about someone has weight to it. And what it does is it solidifies the fact like, oh, this actually works. It's not just in some chef's mind sometime, like I should try pineapple and jalapeno. Like someone's experienced it and experienced that that is a combination that works. As we are reading this opening to John's uh, letter here, he's saying, listen, this is my experience with Jesus. I've touched this guy. I've walked with him. I've heard the words come out of his mouth. I've, I've spent three years traveling with him, sitting around campfires, hearing his teaching, laughing at his jokes, seeing the things that he's done. This is more than just some kind of philosophical idea that people are sharing about. This is more than a theology debate that is going on in the streets or in the synagogue. This is a man that I know and I've spent time with and believe me, he's the real deal. John is sharing something that he's experienced in a way that he hopes lands with those that, he's that are listening and reading to what he said. And I think this is important for us because 
Being 2,000 years removed from the events of the New Testament, sometimes we just look at them as words on a page. We just look at them as traditions that have been passed down. Or just look at them as, as these are more like philosophical theories that we, we debate over. But our faith is actually rooted in people and events and history. That there was someone 2,000 years ago who walked around the Judean countryside and was preaching about the kingdom of God, who gathered a, a ragtag group of disciples who followed him around, who, who was crucified on a Roman cross, was resurrected, and is believed to be the incarnate Son of God. That those events happened is the basis and foundation of our faith, not just an idea that we debate around about. It's not just theory. John is anchoring this in, this happened. I was there. I saw it. I touched it. I felt it. I was in the room and I felt the chill when he said, one of them around this table will betray me. John experienced Jesus. Here's what this means. This means that if what we believe is actually grounded in a person and in history and in events that take place, that the fact that we put our hope in Jesus isn't just in saying, I hope this idea is right. Or I hope like, I, I don't lose the like, philosophical debate about this at some point. Like, if this is grounded in a person and history, then it means that my hope in Jesus is actually going to come through. It means that when I am longing for the comfort of God in my moments of deep grieving and suffering, it means that there's actually tangible intervention and the presence of God with me rather than it just being like wishful thinking and placebo effect and, and saying my faith comforts me in like a, oh, I feel good because I have something nice to think about. It means that there's actually a God at work intervening and is going to show up when we need him most. It means our hope is tangible. It's not just some kind of placebo or wishful thinking. It's not just some idea that, you know, helps us sleep at night by I think about happy things before I go to bed. We have something tangible. It means that if Jesus actually was this man that John experienced and he was actually crucified by the Romans, it means that we actually do have forgiveness for our sins. That it's not just, oh, some philosophical idea of maybe if I say the right words, that something that happened 2,000 years ago is going to make me feel better. No, it means that our sins are actually forgiven. And if the event didn't happen, it means we're the most pitied and of all people, because we put our hope in something that didn't actually happen. Our hope is in the events and the person, not just in philosophical ideas. It's tangible, it's real, it's been experienced. John wants us to know that he's experienced Jesus. And some of you, you have... You believe this and you've also had these moments where you have experienced God show up where you're like, I can't argue with the experience that I've had. 
And it doesn't mean that, that every feeling that we have that, that takes us in a direction and we, we immediately follow that. But, but often we'll have these moments that we can look back on to say, God showed up for me. And I do have some kind of, it may not be a voice from heaven or tangibly touch something. But I, I've experienced God. Go back to that moment and, and point to that. And when we talk, it's more than just some idea. It's I've experienced and I've felt this. And it's exciting to be able to, to tell you about it. John talks about Jesus in a glorious way. He talks from his own experience, but he talks about Jesus in a language that you don't talk about people. Like, I love you guys. But there's none of you that I'm like, you are the eternal word, the glory. Like, it's just not language that you pull out for regular people. I love you. John here, he, he's using language that, that reminds us of the opening of his gospel. In, in John chapter 1, where he talked about the word was with God and the word was God. That all things were created through him and nothing that exists, that has been made, was not made through him. That, that the one who made the world came into the world and dwelt among us. Like this language of the eternal word that he's giving here, he's reminding us that Jesus didn't just begin when Mary had the baby in the stable. That Jesus has always existed. That he is the eternal word. That he has existed from eternity past as the divine Son of God who in his glory and love that he shares among Father, Son, and Spirit decided to come as a human being for the redemption of humanity and the entire cosmos. He's reminding us that, listen, our picture of Jesus shouldn't just be this, it should be this. It's more than these 30 years in first century Palestine. It's eternity past through eternity future. And I think for some of us, this is important because we domesticate Jesus so much. Like we like what he says in this section of his gospels, but not what he says here. Or we're, we're, we're okay with like listening to his teachings, but when he starts to say things about you know, the, the, who he is as the Son of God, we're like, eh, I'm not sure about that. Maybe we need a bigger picture of Jesus. Maybe we need to be reminded that the one who exists for eternity past has come and has died for us, has defeated the reign of the enemy over his faithful. He has risen from the grave and has ascended and is seated on the throne of the universe. And he cares for you. He is the one who cares for you. He's glorious and majestic and he's bigger than what we understand. John is trying to communicate that to us. That I've seen this guy, and man, he's bigger than you thought. The picture that you have from him is just this small, pixelated reflection of the glorious majesty of who he is. And here's something that I love about in John sharing about this. Like, he shares his personal experience. Like, I've seen him, and I've touched him, and I've heard from him. But he's not gloating in like, 
look what I got to do. He, he, he's not like falling into the, the social media trap of like, I've had all these fantastic experiences and I'm going to sh- like post it so you see how fantastic my life is. He's saying, I've experienced this and I want you to know how glorious he is. Like this was my experience. Now look at him. He's the one. He's the one you should be looking at. He's the one who is bigger than any of us fully understand. I've experienced him, and let me tell you, he's phenomenal. John shares from his own experience. He shares about the glorious person of Jesus, and for him, sharing about it is a joy. When I had my pineapple jalapeno pizza, This is a style of preaching, by the way, where you have an overarching metaphor that goes throughout the whole thing. Just, we'll be be circling back to the pizza a few times. When, When I was having that pizza, I was sitting across from one of my good friends, and we decided, all right, I'll give you two pieces of mine, you give me two pieces of yours, right? His pizza wasn't near as good as mine. But I think I enjoyed that pizza better because he got to have some. Right? And I got to hear him say, oh man, this is a good one. I should have ordered this one. And, man, like, I, I love how in our culture we have this sense of like, oh, hey, I love this Netflix show. Have you seen it? And like, we'll recommend things to other people because we've enjoyed something and we want other people to be able to enjoy it as well. We love sharing a good meal with other people because we love sharing a positive experience together. Like, I want you to experience the joy that I've had. I want you to experience that sweet and spicy combination that I had that made that pizza so fantastic. So now, in, like, we both had this great experience, but now we have this common experience that we've had together that, that binds us closer together, that we have something to relate upon. It's bigger than pizza. John experienced deep, abiding joy in knowing Jesus, in seeing who he was. And he so wants others to experience that, that he talks about the joy that it is to be able to share this with other people. I'm writing to you out of joy because I experienced this phenomenal relationship, this fellowship with Jesus that I've experienced, and I want you to know him too. I want you to experience the goodness of what I've experienced, and I want that to be a fellowship that binds us together and us all to God together. I want the good of what I've experienced to be something that you've experienced as well, and for us all to be drawn closer together and closer to God because of it. John loves the fact that he gets to share about Jesus with these people. The fact that he shares it is joy bringing for him. Now, you may say, this is, this is where I disconnect. Because I find very little joy in trying to share Jesus with people. Instead, for me, it is, it brings fear and self-doubt. And I'm scared how that's going to affect our relationship. And they're going to see me as like the awkward Jesus person. But also I think maybe, 
Maybe there's this part within us of in our own relationship with Jesus, we don't feel like it's actually, it's actually good enough to share. Like maybe we feel this self-doubt of, I don't want people to be disappointed if they started having what I have. And I'll be honest, like there are times where I struggle and seasons in my life where I'm feeling very close to Jesus and it is joy bringing and it overflows and all kinds of things. And then there are other seasons where I'm like, if someone else had the kind of relationship with Jesus that I do right now, I feel like it would be less than satisfying for them. And you don't have to nod, but I'm sure that there are some of us in this room where, where we've had that, or we're feeling like that. You're like, I, I would hate for someone else to experience this and then give up on it because they haven't experienced the fullness of what I long for my relationship with Jesus to be. If you were to copy and paste me around, that we wouldn't have a bunch of joy-filled, overspilling Christians. I want the kind of relationship that John had, where it's just oozing out of him, where he has so much deep love and amazement and joy in Jesus that it's just, it's just so natural for him. And if I'm honest, I don't feel that all the time. But I want to. And so I wonder if for some of us this morning, in hearing John's excitement and exuberance, it's actually, demoralizing a little bit to say, I don't feel like I'm there. And I wonder if the invitation for those of us in that place this morning is, is to invite the Holy Spirit into the deep, scary parts inside to say, Spirit, are there ways where you're drawing me closer? Are there ways where you want to speak deeper to me that for whatever reason I I'm kind of pumping the brakes on a little bit where maybe I'm resisting. Are, are there things that God is, is calling you into in your relationship with him where it's like, yeah, I'd love that, but man, it would be so much easier to do three more episodes of Netflix tonight. Uh, listen, I'm not trying to guilt you. But it is in the small things over and over that we find the patterns and our hearts drawn in directions. That Jesus, I, I want to be close to you, but man, I, I had this chance to do my third round of golf this week. Or Jesus, I, I want to be close to you, but man, those, those morning sleep-ins are really important. Are there ways where the Spirit is actually drawing us near to Him, inviting us, and we're putting on the brakes? Where we might actually be choosing to miss out on joy because we're, we're hoping for joy in other places. I so long to be someone who, whose joy is overflowing 
where when people are around me, they're like, man, I'm seeing Jesus. And I can tell that this guy's experienced the Jesus that he talks about. I'm, I'm not fully there yet. I don't know about you. But that's my longing. And, and, and I pray that as I draw close to Jesus, as I experience more and more of that joy, that it'll be more of a natural, joyful thing to be able to say to my neighbor, like, man, I'm, I'm really sorry for what you're going through. And my prayer is that, that Jesus shows up in your life to actually offer the real tangible comfort that the Savior of the world can give. Or to be able to invite someone into community to say, hey, we're doing this small group and I'm not sure where you are with the whole church and Jesus thing, but, but we're working through this, uh, this letter of John and I'd love for you to come out and have some food and spend some time with some of my friends. Like, I would love for that just to be natural. And sometimes it's not going to be. And we need to be careful that because it's not natural, it just freezes us into inaction. That we never make the invite. We never push ourselves out of the comfort zone because it's not the most natural thing in the world. For John, it sounds great and natural, and I love his enthusiasm and exuberance. And I need to hear that, especially in the moments where I feel like I'm not entirely there. But I pray that we all would experience Jesus in a very tangible, personal way. That when we talk to people about Jesus, we can say, listen, I I don't know where you're at, but this is what I've experienced of Jesus. And my prayer is for all of us that our understanding of Jesus would just expand and become more glorious and amazing than it is today. And my, my prayer is that as we grow to know Jesus more deeply and experience a fullness of joy in Him, that that joy would overflow into how we talk to other people because Jesus is big and Jesus is real and Jesus is worth sharing. Long to be that. And I know we have a God who, like, He sees where we're at. He sees us and He loves us deeply. And He is on the throne and He's like, My son and daughter, I am very pleased in them. And I'm sitting, like, my spirit is in them, helping them. So we're not going to switch overnight. Like, you're not going to pick up the study guide and go home this afternoon and open up to John 1 and all of a sudden, like, the joy of the Lord spilled. Maybe it does. And, like, if you do, give me a phone call because I would, I would be so deeply encouraged by that. But I think it's the long obedience in the same direction of saying, Jesus, I, I want you and I'm going to choose you. And I long for my joy to be found in you that that shapes us over time to say yes to Him and no to whatever else so that His joy might overflow in us so that the fellowship that we share with the Father and Son and Spirit and share with one another, as John talks about, would overflow to welcome others into that fellowship. That we might, like John, be able to say, I've experienced, look how big He is. Let me tell you about Him. Would you pray with me?
Jesus, you are glorious. You are the king on the throne. You're the one worthy of our worship and our time and our affection and our devotion. And God, I, I pray for the moments that we're not, we're not feeling it. That you would, in your grace, help us. I pray for the, the times where we're, we're on that mountaintop and, and that we feel this overflowing supernatural joy that comes from you. Would you, would you sustain us in that? In like a, an ongoing, sustainable way. Jesus, would you meet us in the mundane, everyday places? And when we wake up and we get breakfast for our kids and the Cheerios are spilled on the table, somehow the presence of God is there and we're close to Jesus. Or when we're at work and there's the, that coworker that you would be there and present and by your grace show yourself to us. And when we're frustrated with our mobility and the stage of life we're in, Jesus, would you show up and be there and fill us with your kind of joy because we know you. May we experience you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I invite you to stand if you would this morning. Thank you so much, Tyler.